Okay, thank you, Miriam, for this nice introduction, and thanks uh, to the organizers for inviting me here, uh, which is really exciting uh, to be in, at a veterinary conference, which really has been years since I uh, attended a veterinary conf uh, conference. Uh, so my name is Mariska Levang, and I work in Academic Medical Center, uh, focused on humans. Um, the title of my talk is Evidence Synthesis of Diagnostics, and well, the subtitle was great and how it can be used for veterinary evidence. Um, I will not completely focus on great, but great will be in the, in the talk. I will go through um, what diagnostic research encompasses from diagnostic accuracy to patient important outcomes and then the role of great. And in the end, um, a few slides about veterinary issues. I have to put up an, a disclaimer uh, because although... This is uh, my personal opinion, uh, uh, this talk, most of, of it. Um, I'm heavily involved uh, in Cochrane, and especially in the Cochrane Methods Group for Screening and Diagnosis. So much of what I will present here very much relates to uh, what comes from Cochrane and this particular methods group, which is particularly interesting if you think about GRADE, because there, were, there are some, um, yeah, some, so there is some discussion between the diagnostic people and uh, the guideline people between how to use GRADE for diagnostics. But I'll start with a Cochrane review and on a human topic. Um, it's the first systematic review that I ever did, and it's about Galactomanan ELISA for invasive aspergillosis in immunocompromised patients. So these are very sick patients, and they're very vulnerable uh, and very vulnerable for fungal infections. Now, there is this ELISA test uh, that's being used in some wards to detect whether the patient develops uh, invasive aspergillosis. Some hospitals do not use it because they think there's no evidence for it. Uh, some hospitals use it on a, a twice-a-week basis. Some use it on a weekly basis. So there's a, there was a lot of discussion about how, whether and how to use this test a few years ago. So that's why we did this systematic review. So it, is a, it was a systematic review of diagnostic test accuracy, which means that we looked at the sensitivity and specificity of this particular test. And what you see in the picture is the ROC space with sensitivity on the y-axis and one minus specificity on the x-axis. Um, every bubble is the sensitivity and specificity for this particular test from one study. And the size of the bubble reflects the number of patients included in this study. Um, oh. This black dot is a summary estimate sensitivity specificity retrieved by, uh, by doing a meta-analysis. And this, this ellipse around it is the confidence region. So we don't have one confidence interval for sensitivity se separately and one confidence interval for specificity separately, but we combine it into a confidence region. Um, we found a, a summary sensitivity of 77% and a summary specificity of 85%. Now, I've been talking for a few minutes uh, with this slide up, so you probably already have an idea of whether you find this a good test or not, whether you find this sensitivity high or not so high, or perhaps you need more information, that's also possible. Um, one thing that you should have noticed is the, very, the, the vast variation in sensitivity from almost 0% to almost 100%, and in specificity 
from, what is it, let's say 20% to almost 100%. And this is not unique for this test and this disease. But I'll come back to that. Um, I have to... And you might wonder, okay, so sensitivity is 77%, specificity is 85%, but what about the quality of the studies? I want to know the quality of the studies before I can say whether I trust these numbers or not. So, okay, we looked at the quality of the studies as well. We used the Quadras 2 checklist for that. Um, and the Quadras 2 checklist is divided in risk of bias and concerns regarding applicability, which is what we call... Well, risk of bias is more the internal validity of a study and concerns regarding applicability refer to the external validity of a study. So can I use these results in my, in my patients in practice, so to speak? Um, well, most of it is green, so that's good. So the, the, uh, the studies were of good quality, which is a bit too straightforward perhaps, but okay. Um, so we looked at, at um, risk of bias in patient inclusion, in the conduct of the index test, the conduct of the reference standard, and the, the flow of the patients through the study. And we did the same for concerns regarding applicability, except for flow and timing. Um, by the way, this, the reference standard is, um, can be uh, regarded as a gold standard. So we use the term reference standard because... Uh, there is this notion that a real gold standard, an absolute gold standard, rarely exists. And that it perhaps is sometimes better to use a practically uh, relevant reference standard rather than an absolute gold standard. Okay, you could also say, okay, I know the sensitivity and specificity, but actually, what's the prevalence of this disease? Because I want to know my predictive values. I want to be able to calculate predictive values. I need to know the prevalence. Okay, the prevalence in these studies is typically 5%. So perhaps now you think, okay, 77% sensitivity, 85% specificity. It might still not help you in indicating whether this is a good test or not, whether we should use it or not. So what we do in Cochrane Reviews is that we um, take a hypothetical cohort of patients and explain what these accuracy measures mean in terms of um, natural frequencies. So we have a hypothetical cohort in this case of, let's say, a thousand patients. So then in every thousand patients tested, 50 will have invasive aspergillosis, 5% prevalence. That means that with a sensitivity of 77%, we will pick up 38 of these 50 patients, which also means that we will miss 12. Um, 950 will have no invasive aspergillosis, which means with a specificity of 85%, um, that of these, um, of these 950, 807 indeed will have a negative test as well, which also means that we will have 143 false positives. So these patients do not have invasive aspergillosis, but they do get a positive test. It also means that we will have, in this hypothetical cohort of 1,000 patients, we will have 819 negative test results which only a very small percentage will really will, will have invasive aspergillosis. So the negative predictive value is really high for this test in this situation. Um, on the other hand, we will also have a total of 181 positive test results, of which only 21% is true positive. So the positive predictive value will be really low. Now, what's the consequence? This, this might give you already a better idea of whether this test would be useful um, good or not 
Uh, because now you can think about the balance between your false negatives and the false positives. But still, knowing a little bit more of how the test is being used in practice may also be helpful. So we did this review with clinical microbiologists. And from the start, we knew this is the clinical pathway. So this test is being used in all immunocompromised patients with, who, that, uh, who present with fever. They undergo this ELISA, the platelia, that's the ELISA that I was talking about. If it's positive, we treat the patients. If it's negative, we don't treat the patients. But these patients will be, uh, will be tested again one week later or a few days later. So that means, if we go back to our hypothetical cohort, that of the 12 patients that we miss, those patients will be retested in less than a week or in a week's time, depending on the, on the strategy that they use in the hospital. So the actual question is, how fast do these patients get worse? Um, and is that, is that slow enough to not be a problem? So if, if we test a week later and we pick these patients up, are they then severely worsened, or is their situation relatively stable? Also, for the uh, 143 false positives, you could ask these 143 false positives, they do get the treatment. How bad is that treatment? It, it's a pretty harsh treatment. Um, how, and these patients are already very sickened and very weak, so it may be a very large extra burden for these patients to be treated with antifungal treatments while they do not need it. So perhaps, well, if you realize that if we would increase our threshold, so this was at a, at a relatively low threshold, so if we would increase our threshold in such a way that we would have slightly more false negatives, but a whole lot, more, uh, a whole lot less false positives, that that may be better for clinical practice in the end, depending on, on how bad the situation for the false negatives is, of course. So we thought, well, that's done and dusted. Our review is finished. Uh, we can publish it, and we know what the clinical pathway is. Uh, and this test, it's useful, but perhaps not at this threshold, but at a higher threshold. But then uh, one of our team uh, asked, what is, what is really the clinical path? Is it as simple as this? And then a clinical microbiologist uh, went back um, to look into the clinical pathway that, or, or the, the decision model that is being used in the AMC, in our, in our academic hospital. Um, and we found out that the actual clinical pathway is far more complicated. Because all immunocompromised patients may be tested, or only the ones with clinical symptoms. Um, but often, if clinical signs and symptoms are clear enough, patients are already referred for, uh, for X-ray and if the x-ray is positive, these patients will be treated if it's positive enough. Or, and also, after the ELISA is positive, patients first go to CT to confirm the ELISA result. So, what's the value, even if we would have a much higher sensitivity and specificity, what's the value of this ELISA test? If, for example, clinical signs and symptoms become suggestive of invasive aspergillosis much earlier then the test becomes positive. What if uh, the CT remains negative, even if this ELISA is positive? Will these patients be treated? Will they not be treated? So, and well, we looked at it at, at th there was a vast variation in sensitivity and specificity, but there was also quite some variation in prevalence. 
and we know that in different prevalence situations, you probably have different um, case mix of, of patients. So sensitivity specificity will be different in different clinical situations and in different prevalence settings. So what if, the, what if we would have a much higher prevalence of very sick patients? Um, would the sensitivity specificity be different then? What would be the consequences for this clinical pathway? So what we concluded in the end for this systematic review is we cannot really say whether this test is useful or not. It depends on too many factors. So what does it tell us? Well, it tells us that sensitivity and specificity alone are not very informative. I gave you the sensitivity and specificity, and some of you may have thought, well, that's actually pretty good. I, if I would have a test with that sensitivity and specificity, it's okay. Well, others may have thought, well, I'd rather um, have a test closer to the 100%. And while some of you may have thought, I need more information because I can, before I can say anything about this test. And what we also found out through qualitative research is that, and, and well, you saw it in this presentation as well, is that using natural frequencies may help the interpretation. So that already makes it better. But what's actually most important and what's actually my, my take-home message now is that the consequences of testing are important. And that all starts with the question. So here for this invasive aspergillosis, it was very important to realize what are the consequences for the false negatives? Will they completely be missed? Or is it okay if they are retested a few days later? What, is the, what are the consequences for the false positives? Uh, for the false negatives, what are the consequences for the false positives? If they get this antifungal treatment, how bad is that? Um, so you need to be aware of what the question is before you can interpret the results of the ROC space that I showed and the results of such a systematic review. So last night I went on, on to PubMed to see if I could find some veterinary diagnostic test accuracy systematic reviews. I, find, I found a few, uh, and these are two examples. So the first one is an example uh, where they uh, systematically reviewed radiological measurements in dogs and cats. So they included anything from radiology, um, uh, echo card, um, echo uh, measurements, and every measure about volumes in the picture or uh, distance between two points, these kind of measurements. Uh, but they included dogs and cats and different target conditions. And then they came with a, with a sensitivity and specificity in the end. But to me, and I suspect also for you, interpreting the sensitivity and specificity is very difficult because for each of these different conditions, consequences may be different. And the consequences may be different for, for dogs and for cats, perhaps not so, but they could be different. Um, and the consequences may be different in, well, what we would say primary care or, or a specialized care. Uh, the other example that I found was about uh, hyperkitonuria in, in cows. And also there, um, I went through the systematic review and I could not find... I could find it, it was a very well uh, done systematic review with absolutely the correct, as we promote in Cochrane, the correct uh, methods. But still, I had no idea what this test would be used for and what the next steps would be with these cows with, uh, who would be suspected of uh, hyperketonuria or uh, the cows with a negative test. Well, that is crucial information if you want to have any idea about the value of a test. 
Okay, what sort of diagnostic questions can we have? Well, there are loads of diagnostic questions, but I'll, we'll, I will only put up uh, three, and then diagnostic research questions uh, mainly. So if you are interested in evidence about the diagnostic, then one of the questions you could have is, does this test add information to what I already know? Basically, it's what we do in, in predictive modeling or prognostic modeling. We have all uh, characteristics of the patient, and then on top of that, we have the test result, and then we check whether the test result, um, in a quantitative way, adds something to the information we already have. But you could also look at it in a more clinical way. You could also compare the, result, the accuracy, sensitivity, specificity of the result of a test um, plus clinical signs and symptoms versus clinical signs and symptoms alone, for example. Um, another way of thinking about diagnostics is the question, what are the chances of an individual having this disease after a positive or a negative test result? This also is more into the predictive modeling, and, and for this, predictive values are very useful. But as you saw, even if I have only sensitivity and specificity, I can still work this question out. The, the measures are related to each other. But the most important question, at least what is being seen in the evidence-based medicine world for diagnostics at, at this time, is the question, if I use this test, will my patient's situation improve? So, for example, in... Um, in, uh, I'll come back to it later, but uh, this is, this is the, uh, the main important question. Um, the underlying question is, I can have a perfect test, but what if this, the results of the perfect test do not change patient management? I can have a very expensive test with a much higher sensitivity and a much higher specificity than my cheap test, but what if in the end the management consequences are the same in both situations. What if, in the end, patients do not really benefit from that more expensive and more accurate test? Should we use it then? So if you want to investigate whether a test improves patient-important outcomes or the situation of a patient, or whether the test is effective, the gold standard study design is a randomized controlled trial. So this is an example. Um, of a randomized controlled trial for rapid tests for malaria. So we have patients that have fever, we randomize them, half of them uh, undergo the rapid test, and then the, the results of the rapid test guide treatment, and the other half uh, will be guided based on clinical, clinical signs and symptoms or what a clinician thinks should be done. Um, and then in the end, we measure which patient group has, has, more, has a better survival. Now, there's a lot, of say, a lot to say about this design because here it looks very easy, and to do it in practice, that's a different story. Um, but still, um, for example, it, the, the ICWIC uh, in, in Germany, which is a, an institution that uh, advises the German government on, um, on health issues, they say if we don't have randomized controlled trials, we cannot give an evidence-based opinion about a clinical question. And that's true for treatment, but it's also true for diagnostics. So if we have no randomized controlled trials for diagnostics, we cannot make a valid recommendation about whether a diagnostic should be used in practice or not. Which is perhaps a bit extreme, um, but there's, there's a lot to say for it. 
Um, some people may say, oh, these randomized control trials are never done. Well, that's also not true. This is a systematic review from the Cochrane Infectious Diseases Group, where they did a systematic review on randomized controlled trials for rapid tests for malaria. So these randomized controlled trials are being done. Um, and if you have a diagnostic question, it is, it, at least in this case, it was possible to approach that question as an effectiveness question. Okay, so now I slowly come to GRADE, because um, in GRADE it's the same ID. We need randomized controlled trials for diagnostics. For those of you who are not familiar with GRADE, the GRADE working group is a working group uh, of people interested in uh, making recommendations for practice and developing grading systems for these recommendations. Um, so the GRADE system is um, most often used in guidelines uh, by guideline developers to indicate whether their body of evidence has a high quality or not, and then how to, do, how to come from the body of evidence to a clinical recommendation. That is what, what GRADE uh, does or helps with. And also within the GRADE for diagnostic, uh, diagnostic questions, the key notion is that even a perfect test is useless if it does not change management. So if people use the GRADE, uh, the GRADE uh, terminology to GRADE the, the level of evidence that they use in their guideline. Um, there are five domains in which this body of evidence can be downgraded in quality, and there are three domains for which the body of evidence can be upgraded in quality. Um, for diagnostics, those three upgrading domains are for now ignored, because we think they are not really upgrading uh, um, domains. But I also think that there's a lot of more uh, research needed there. Um, so for now, I focus on the downgrading domains, uh, and especially on these two. So it makes sense that you want to downgrade the quality of your evidence if there's a lot risk of bias, if there's a high risk of bias. Um, it also makes sense if, that you want to downgrade the body of evidence, the quality of the body of evidence, if, there, if there's an indirect link between your evidence and the situation that you're talking about. Um, Imprecision says something about the variability, so if it's a very imprecise estimate, then the quality of the evidence will be downgraded as well. The same is true for inconsistency or high levels of heterogeneity. And if there is a lot of public if, if there is the risk of publication bias, then that is also a reason to downgrade. A publication bias is also um, problematic in diagnostic research. Or problematic. There is some evidence that there is um, publication bias in diagnostic research, but only little evidence. Uh, but for now, I focus on indirectness um, and inconsistency. And indirectness is, is key if you use GRADE for diagnostic questions. Actually, it's key if you, if you are interested in diagnostic evidence at large. Because any test only has an indirect impact on the patient. We have a test result and the test result drives a management decision. This management decision may be treatment, but it may also be first a whole batch of other tests and, and methods and whatever. Um, and then the treatment affects the health of the patient. So the test result only has an indirect impact on patient's health. 
and that, may, that makes it complicated. So if you would use GRADE to assess the quality of the body of evidence for diagnostic accuracy, so if you use GRADE to assess whether the estimates of sensitivity and specificity are reliable, then basically the only level of, um, of indirectness would be the indirectness between the population in, in the review, in the body of evidence, versus the population that will be used in practice. So that's the indirectness that you would also use for intervention review, uh, research. Do the patients in this study, are they representative for the patients in practice? However, if you're interested in patient-important outcomes, then there's another level of indirectness, and that other level of indirectness is the indirectness between accuracy and effectiveness. So that's this indirectness. So if you are working on a diagnostic guideline and the only evidence you... And, and one of the questions of the guideline is should we use this test in practice, yes or no? Or should we use test A rather than test B? And the only evidence you have is diagnostic test accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, predictive values, likelihood ratios then this body of evidence should always be downgraded because it's always indirect evidence. It does not directly relate to the health of the patients. So some people find the great working group too strict in this approach, um, but there's a lot to say about it because indeed the relationship between the test result and patient's health is indirect. And if you know the sensitivity, specificity, predictive values, likelihood ratios of a test, it doesn't mean that you also know if the test is really effective in practice. Uh, then the other item that I will briefly touch upon is the item of inconsistency. Um, so many of these systematic reviews only look at one test, and then inconsistency is often interpreted as a lot of heterogeneity. But where's the threshold for a lot of heterogeneity? So what you actually want is... Um, what, what it's easier to interpret inconsistency if you compare two tests. So if you have, this is a picture from uh, immuno, uh, immuno blood for Lyme disease and an ELISA for Lyme disease. And these are studies that look both at the immuno blood versus a reference standard and the ELISA versus the same reference standard and in the same patients. So now you can compare the immuno blood with the ELISA. And what you see here that sometimes these, red, uh, these black circles have a higher sensitivity, and sometimes the red uh, diamonds have a much higher sensitivity. That is what we call inconsistency. In some studies, test A is much better, and in some studies, test B is much better. And well, if there's a lot of inconsistency, then you should certainly downgrade, because it's difficult to assess the value of this. Okay, so for the last few minutes, very quickly, the uh, evidence synthesis in veterinary diagnostics. And I may be trained as a veterinarian, but I never practiced. So I realized that my point of view is the point of view of a researcher, and more importantly, a medical researcher. But I think that you should start with a question. What is the question at hand? What are we looking at? Are we looking at an individual animal, a question about individual animals, horses, cats, dogs more, most often, um, at herd level? Will the decisions that are being made being made at individual level or herd level? Are we looking at a public health problem? And then what is a test management pathway? Where in that pathway does this test fit? And what are the consequences of testing? What happens with a positive test result? What happens after a negative test result? 
Where do I miss evidence in that, in that whole pathway from start to finish? Um, then asking the right question is important. So what is it that I want to know about this test? Is it an accuracy question, an uh, effectiveness question, or a prediction question? For example, in paratuberculosis, um, on which I, uh, I worked when I was a student, um, you can test the cow when it comes into the herd. What do you do with a negative test? What do you do with a positive test? What if it's false positive? What if it's false negative? Uh, you can monitor the herd, but what do you do if you have one positive test? Uh, it might be a false positive. Or you could test the moment the cow shows symptoms, if the cow uh, becomes um, more, more lean or uh, um, gets diarrhea, and you test, then what? Um, so what happens after a positive and a negative test result, and what are the consequences of the false positives and of the false negatives? And actually, the underlying question is, will testing in this situation make a difference anyway? I'm not saying that it doesn't. I'm not saying that it does, but I think that's the, the crucial question here. Um, and that's a question, the same you could ask, for example, for breast screening, uh, mammography for breast screening. Also there, it is possible to investigate those questions in randomized control trials. Um, and this is a systematic review of randomized control trials for breast uh, cancer screening. So uh, the question is key. What is it that you want to know? Accuracy is not the answer to all diagnostic questions. Thank you.